Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm going to try something a little different, a look back at a previous party leader, focusing on the lessons we can learn for the present day from their ups and downs. No surprise then that I'm joined for the show this time by the closest thing the party has to an official historian, Duncan Brack. Welcome back to the show, Duncan. Thank you, Mark. It's very good to be with you. So let's uh, talk about Joe Grimmond and for listeners who are not so familiar with him, a quick recap of his political career. He was elected as Liberal MP for Orkney and Shetland in 1950, became party leader six years later in 56, carrying on for just over a decade until he stood down in 1967. He then had a brief appearance as an interim acting party leader in the late 1970s, before standing down as an MP in 1983. But in that core period when he was leader, 56 to 67, the party started off with six MPs and ended up with 12 MPs by the time he stood down. So still quite a small party. And I think a gain of six seats probably doesn't really capture fully his impact on the Liberal Party and indeed on British politics in general. So Duncan, what is it that makes Joe Grimmond such a special totemic figure that many people of an older generation at least refer back to him with affection about how he got them involved in the party and so on? So what is it about him that that he he gained six seats over 11 years doesn't really capture? A number of things but I think the thing to remember and to start off with is that essentially Grimmond saved the Liberal Party from extinction Mm. and I think it's not an exaggeration to say that. I think people probably may not appreciate just how bad a state the party was in by the early 50s. Uh, For example in the 1955 election just before he was elected leader the party only fought 110 seats out of 630 so it's not much more than one in six. Um, The total UK vote was 2.7%, which was just 0.1% improvement on the previous uh, general election in 1951. And the number of strong second places the party managed was only 19 plus six elected MPs. Now, at the peak of Grimmond's leadership, so not the last election he fought, but 1964 election, the party was up to fighting half the seats, 365. Um, It managed 11.2% of the vote, so not much short of what we achieved in 2019. Uh, There were 12 MPs, uh, sorry, nine MPs in 1964, um, but 128 strong second places. So basically, people were wondering in the mid, uh, early to mid 50s, whether the Liberal Party would, would survive at all. And of the six MPs that were elected then, Grimmond was the only one who fought against both Conservative and Labour opposition. Um, By the end of this period, all the local pacts with other parties had uh, gone away. The party organisation was much stronger. It wasn't uh, a major force on the political scene, but nobody doubted by then that the Liberal Party was going to survive. And indeed, Grimmond's successor, Thorpe, took it on to much, and then David Steele after that, took it on to much higher levels of the vote. So he was an absolutely critical figure in the survival of the Liberal Party in the 20th century. And I guess one other thing that happened then, although it wasn't so important to the party, perhaps, as it is now, was also the beginning of revival in local government. Um, I think when we've tried to recover from previous, from subsequent disasters, such as the merger 88-89, sort of veering towards extinction, or indeed the mass culling of Lib Dem MPs in 2015, after both of those, rebuilding the party's local government base has been seen to be a really key part of 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 the 
package in a way that I don't think it was really in the 60s. But nonetheless, there was quite an upsurge in Liberal government, local government success in all sorts of what to our eyes now would look like quite unusual areas. And what how how similar therefore do you sort of feel the recovery under Grimmond is to the sort of recovery the party needs to achieve now um so that's a good question but the um it is quite similar in many ways i think um but i think that Grimmond you can't really associate it in with the improvements in party organization mm. that happened during his leadership and i think when we sort of after we've dealt with this question we we need to talk about his legacy for policy mm. and just for communicating the liberal message where i think he made those are the two areas he really made a huge difference but it's true to say that liberal organization did improve markedly during his period as uh, as leader but that wasn't really anything much to do with him um local government started to be taken seriously um when he became leader nobody really saw local government as a as a really vehicle for the party to succeed the party headquarters didn't track the number of liberal councillors um and there was no sort of organization behind local government campaigns most of that changed by the time he stopped being leader in 1967 a local government department was established in party hq uh, in 1960 and uh, party luminaries such as Michael Meadowcroft were taken on later to go around the country and try and instill a bit of discipline and coherence into local government um, uh, groups. Um, again, the impact of Grimmond on the Liberal Party and the Liberal Revival can be seen in some of the figures. The number of Liberal councillors tripled from 1960 to 63, but councillors reappeared in areas of the country where they simply hadn't been present at all for generations. For example, in a, a band of the home counties to the south and uh, west, east, south and west of London in 1956, in uh, about six counties altogether, there were a total of eight Liberal councillors. By 1963, that had risen to, 90, to 470. So you can see a really dramatic impact there. Party membership, actually, just in passing, was up to 350,000 by 1963 at the kind of peak of the Liberal revival. Slightly, and that's slightly multiplied, days for multiplied by five. Then. Yeah, I mean, even in the lowest period in the early 50s, it was still 70,000. Party political memberships in general were higher then. But you can see it was that's a fivefold increase uh, again over the period of Grimm's leadership. So um, what Grimmond was good at though as leader was was leaving the sort of organizational side of the party to other people and appointing um, able lieutenants to run that side. People like Mark Bonham Carter, um, Donald Wade, uh, Frank Byers, people who um, had been MPs perhaps quite briefly sometimes, but then were prepared to help with writing speeches. Um, steering the party organization getting involved in the kind of stuff that Grimmond was kind of too grand really to uh, to worry his head about uh, and that was a very sensible way to run the party I think. And what was his sort of view of I guess both party organization and local government because this is something I think doesn't really come out in certainly what I've read about him is that you can because you can have two ways of being hands-off you can be hands-off about say local government because you don't care about it or you can be hands-off because you do really care about it, but you also know that good leadership involves putting really good people in place in key posts to look after things. So you could be hands off and really committed or hands off and not interested and maybe even misunderstand the importance of something. Do you have a sense of which of those Grimmond was? I think it changed over his leadership. Mm. I think nobody at party headquarters really took local government seriously at the beginning of his leadership mm. in 56. I think by the time he left in 67, I think they did overall. And I think that changed. Um, I think Grimm's own yeah. view changed of that. It became clearly a vehicle for 
um, showing to well helping build party organization on the ground because obviously a small group of liberals in any constituency are more able to win a single council ward than the whole constituency and spreading the liberal message and demonstrating to electors that liberals can win and so that i don't simply don't think that was appreciated in the mid-50s and not surprising because the liberal party had been on a kind of continuous trend downwards for at least the previous 30 <laughs> years um things changed enormously the whole political system the whole kind of alignment to the major two parties was yeah. just beginning to disintegrate and local government was a good way to demonstrate that liberals could chip away at it yeah because this is i mean this is a little bit of a historical niche but uh, indulge myself for a moment is it that's one element that does really puzzle me is where did that revival of interest in local government come from? Because as you say, I mean, Grimmond was not directly obstructive to it. He maybe ended up even being mildly supportive of it in at least letting others get on with it. Um, but in the bigger picture of the sort of British politics of the second half of the last century, that idea that local government really matters and becomes a base for parliamentary elect electoral success is something that all parties pretty much ended up believing by late into the century. They didn't believe it early in the century. So, and the Liberals seem to have pioneered that switch, but it's almost like it just happened organically. So I think we need another episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts on that particularly. And you should in interview my colleague in the history group, Mark Egan, mm. who's, uh, I was just looking behind me at my bookshelves. I've got his PhD thesis, which was published as a book later on. From memory, I think it's called Coming Into Focus, which is yes, a very I've, clever Yes, I remember title. reading the book. It's... <laughs> About the revival of the Liberal mm. Party in the 50s and 60s. And he traces the development of intensive local campaigning, what later came to be called community politics, uh, and certainly started, I think, you can trace it slightly earlier than Grimm himself, in local areas like Liverpool and South End, where people began to issue newsletters, which some of them eventually called Focus, um, and began to see local government success on the back of it. Um, and gradually the idea spread through the party, but I think I'm not enough expert in this area to know. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that the local government department in Party HQ that was founded in 1960 was funded actually not by the party centrally but by Richard Wain Wainwright mm -hmm. who was uh, a party benefactor and later MP for Cone Valley um, but he understood the importance but I said Party HQ didn't at that point but they became convinced when they saw the impact it had. So if one of the elements of Grimman's successes and importance as a leader was letting other people get on with important tasks to do with organisation and local government I think that doesn't really capture by any means the full extent of his contribution because he did seem to have a personality, didn't he, that really drew people to the party. That in, for example, one of the earlier editions of your book, Duncan, uh, Why I'm a Liberal and Why I'm a Liberal Democrat, you know, that, that series, it's, it, you know, there's a whole generation of people who refer to Grimmond directly and personally as the thing that brought them into the party. And so what was it about his personality that, that really made people think, oh, maybe this small, previously declining party is worth paying attention to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to talk about, isn't it, for you and me who are too young mm. to remember uh, Grimmond. I do. I was in the famous meeting in the 1981 mm. Liberal Assembly, the first conference I ever went to, uh, where he and Shirley Williams addressed a, a huge fringe meeting. Uh, I mean, as big as the whole assembly, actually, on the uh, the idea behind the foundation of the alliance with the SDP. But I, I never particularly, I don't think I ever met him personally. I, I never knew him. But clearly, he had an impact on a whole generation of liberal activists. And Tony Greaves, um, who's now 
one of our members of the House of Lords, of course, wrote in 1967 when Grimmond retired, we are the Grimmond generation. Whether we like it or not, most of us joined and became active in the Liberals and Young Liberals when Joe Grimmond was not only a Liberal leader, to all intents and purposes, he was the Liberal Party. And a whole generation, Greaves, David Steele, William Wallace, people like that all came in and were attracted to and then stayed in the Liberal Party. And it just, um, I think, demonstrates the importance of individuals. Perhaps it doesn't always need to be individuals who do that. Um, I think Brexit might have done the same mm. thing for the Liberal Democrats in attracting a whole sort of new generation yeah. of people into us. Um, but l individuals can be enormously important. I think probably only in the subsequent history of the party, Paddy Ashdown probably comes nearest to that. Maybe Charles I, I do. I find Paddy an interesting parallel there because I think Paddy was you know, almost notoriously not a particularly strong performer in Parliament. That's and he true. wasn't he wasn't a brilliant speech maker either. I mean, he was definitely a class well above me. But he had there was something about his charisma and his energy that made listening to a Paddy speech in person hugely energizing, even if you might afterwards look at the words and that wouldn't come through in that. And I, and I wonder whether for people like me and younger people as well, it might be a bit easy to underestimate Grimman because the words don't necessarily give you the full impact of the, the the skill and the passion in the in in projecting his his personality and his enthusiasm to the on the audience yeah i think that's right um and we, we published some of Grimman's speeches including the famous sound of gunfire speech uh in our book great liberal speeches um sadly long out of print but i'm sure you can get a second hand copy somewhere um but yes reading them is not the same as listening the same way as reading paddy's speeches uh is not the same as being in the hall listening to them and i think actually one thing we will just in passing i think one thing we'll miss about conference uh in september is just the energy and the excitement you get mm. from being in the hall yeah. um though obviously there are there are other advantages to having a wider participation um I mean, clearly Grimmond had a huge impact on people. And I think partly he was a very, very good speech maker um, to party conferences and uh, to a, to a lesser extent in Parliament. But again, Tony Greaves, um, writing about him, um, believed, and this was, uh, we've, the history group has run a couple of meetings actually on Grimmond's legacy, and this was taken from one of them. Greaves believed Grimmond to have been the most charismatic performer and speaker in British politics since 1945 for any party. And actually, you can see journalists who you know weren't liberal partisans like Greaves making the same sort of comment. He was clearly a very powerful speaker. But that's not enough, I think, just to... I mean, it's interesting to explore what we mean by charisma. That's not enough by itself, though it's an important thing. The party leader has to be inspiring. But I think they also have to be... People have to have affection for them. And again, I think Paddy is a good parallel here. People were able to relate to him. You know, you could have a chat with Paddy in the bar, a conference late at night. He was very good with small groups of people, uh, party members or voters, mm. um, talking to them in a very informal way and treating all of them seriously, not sort of talking down to any of them. And Joe Grimmond, by all accounts, was exactly the same. People always knew him in the party by his first name as Joe. Uh, in the same way, I think they tended to know Paddy as Paddy. Mm. Um, and that came over, I think, uh, to the electorate as well. The other key thing about his communication ability was he was a very good television performer. Mm. And this was when television was um, becoming uh, important in British politics in a way which it hadn't been for previous generations. Um, again, you know, previously, pre-mid-50s, pre pre not that many people had television, but it was just becoming very common in domestic homes. So um, 
election campaigns were more and more fought through uh, through television. Grimmond, when he was leader, was considerably younger than his predecessor, Clement Davis, who was 30 years younger, mm-hmm. and he was younger than both the Tory and Labour leaders, uh, and he held that position until Harold Wilson mm-hmm. um, became Labour leader and actually started using some of the same techniques. So he seemed like, I mean, I think the, the kind of period at the end of the 50s, early 60s, was a period when people began to sense that things were changing mm-hmm. quite fundamentally. Um, the Tories have been in power since 1951, so um, by 1960 for nine years. Mm. There was a kind of feeling of decay about the Tory government. There were increasing scandals, mm. the perfumio scandal and so on. Things were falling apart. Labour was racked with internal divisions, mm. where have you heard that before, <laughs> um, over Europe and the independent nuclear deterrent. Um, and Gate School was, uh, Hugh Gateskill, the Labour leader, was fighting his uh, opponents. Uh, and all of a sudden you had this younger, charismatic, um, very good looking by all accounts, quite tall, which helps in, uh, you know, you don't like to think these things matter, but they do help a bit. Figure coming oh, There on, are some coming. really depressing uh, academic peer-reviewed articles and all of that about the average heights of candidates in things like US yeah. presidential elections and how basically being taller does seem to genuinely up your chances of winning. Yeah. I obviously, obviously neither you nor I are ever swayed by such superficial <laughs> criteria, but yeah. Um, yeah, I obviously haven't managed to capitalise on my six foot two either. Um, so Grimmond just came over very well in all sorts of different settings. Uh, and people hadn't seen this from a liberal politician before. And this was happening just as people were beginning to lose their um, attraction or um, their allegiance to both the Conservative and Labour yeah. parties. So everything worked together, I think. And, and again, I, I suspect that for anyone who, say, listening to this is then tempted to go and look at some YouTube clips of, of Grimmond, is that it's probably quite easy to underestimate how effective his television style was because that was a period when a lot of people were still, to our modern eyes, very, very wooden as they were adjusting to it. Yeah. So that, so him looking moderately reasonable to our eyes now actually underplays just how effective that was in a world where people hadn't yet adapted properly to the, to the medium. But the other thing, and maybe actually the thing even more than than his sort of charisma that people talk about is this generation of new policy thinking and therefore not just making the Liberal Party sort of politically relevant but also and perhaps as a precondition on that making the Liberal Party seem ideologically relevant as well because I think there was a sense wasn't there that the old Liberal Party had in part been superseded by Labour but then there are also on the, as we would now think of it, on the right wing of the Liberal Party, the ardent free marketeers who ended up splitting off, forming the Institute for Economic Affairs and in many ways being part of the sort of 1970s sort of Thatcherite ideological uh, movement. Uh, and, and so there was a sense of well, what's, what's the role for the Liberal Party? You know, if you've got people on the right people on the left sort of splintering away what does the Liberal Party mean and by the end of his time as leader it you know that wasn't a question that seemed that hard to answer it the party did seem to have a real role didn't it yes I think that's right and I think there are two aspects to that first is the Grimmins um, role in 
defining the Liberal Party very clearly as a centre-left party. It was an anti-conservative party, but a uh, not a socialist party, unlike the Labour Party. And that's pretty much the, the position we've occupied mm. ever since. That wasn't so clear in the 40s and 50s. Mm. Um, and I, I remember the, because uh, again, this for a long period of liberal decline, there was a mass observation opinion poll in the 40s, I think, post-war period that showed that the only thing party people could identify at the Liberal Party was its support for free trade. And that just seemed to be, you know, like the party itself, a relic of a bygone age mm. uh, and just wasn't that important a political issue then, as it had been in the you know, early years of the 19th, uh, of the 20th century. Um, basically, all parties were pretty much in favour of free trade by then. Um, and quite often, um, liberal councillors and liberal candidates fought elections, uh, either informally or formally, with together with the Conservatives. In many parts of the country, they were seen as an anti-socialist sort of combination. That all changed. Uh, under Grimman. He, as I said, he established the party very clearly on the left. The free trade issue really came into, um, it was crystallized by uh, Grimman's proposal to that Liberals should support the um, establishment uh, of the European Eco Economic Community, the EEC, as it was known then, and um, that the UK should join it from the outset. That was um, offensive to some of the old kind of more purist free trade supporters in the party who saw the idea of a common European tariff import duties against the rest of the world as protectionist. But of course, liberal support for free trade was always about more than just the economic issues, though you know, there are good economic reasons to support uh, the removal of tariffs. It goes back to the old Coptonite um, belief that trade between nations encourages, speds that spreads peace and understanding. If nations trade together, they don't fight each other. Uh, and that was what was important about the EEC, and particularly as you know, a serious attempt to bring peace to Western Europe, mm. to a continent that had been racked by serious wars, sometimes going global uh, for the previous several hundred years. So that was what Grimman proposed. And in so doing, yes, as you said, drove the right wing, sort of purist free traders out. Some of them formed the Institute of Economic Affairs and became influential on Margaret Thatcher. But again, it helped to define what the Liberal Party was for. Yeah. Now, Grimman's um, attitude to policy uh, was quite interesting and something we wouldn't find terribly happy. Uh, again, maybe there are echoes with Paddy here, but basically he didn't worry about policy committees or conference or anything like that. He usually just wrote an article in Liberal News or gave a speech, uh, and then that became the party of the, the policy of the party. Um, and he did that on a whole series of issues, not just Europe, but opposition to Britain's independent nuclear deterrent. Um, uh, he was one of the first serious politicians to propose home rule for Scotland and Wales. Um, and he was active as well in the anti-colonial movement, sort of speeding up Britain's uh, decolonization and withdrawal from empire, um, and was very firmly um, opposed to any kind of racist approach to, to policy. And all of these things were basically introduced by Grimm and supported by many others into the party, and the party went along with them, partly because, you know, these were good liberal ideas, but partly because of the affection and the respect with which people held him. And that early support for membership of the European Economic Community that you know, in several iterations later became the European Union, I think was probably one of his most important direct policy legacies, although arguably, you know, the Liberal Party would have become pro-European at some later date, such as in the early 1970s referendum. But I think the what is probably not inevitable in the same way is that point about choosing to locate the party on the centre-left, because as you said, there were you know, there, there, there's certainly a story you can plausibly tell about how the party might have ended up ended up on the centre right and perhaps disappearing from existence as well. 
And the thing that particularly intrigues me about Grimman's approach to that was that he talked a lot about wanting a realignment on the left. So to sort of locate the Liberal Party on the centre-left, but also for the Liberal Party to be at the heart of a remaking of the party system. And essentially, realignment on the left meant replacing Labour. And I think there's, um, there's two aspects of that that is worth perhaps particularly talking about. One is a sort of political strategy and organisational one. But one also is uh, almost an ideological one, which is that quite often in the current Lib Dems, for example, people who view themselves as being on the centre left and, you know, most on the centre left in the party actually want to cooperate with Labour, whilst people who in the party maybe view themselves as being on the right of the party, which still might mean centre left overall, but, you know, relatively speaking on the right, but uh, oft, you, know, um, you know, often in the past, at least, have been people have been most vocal about wanting to sort of get, you know, get rid of Labour because, you know, because of particularly Labour's record, say, in local government in Northern England and so on. So how did, what was Joe Grimman's take on sort of cooperating with Labour versus replacing Labour? So I don't think he ever saw um, his realignment of the left strategy as being about replacing the Labour Party. Um, the one thing about Grimman was that he was he often he was very good at articulating a vision but he really wasn't very good on the details <laughs> um and i think uh, now this is a clear difference from paddy who who always went into lots of details about his strategy um and one reason probably why grimmond actually retained the affection uh, of so many party members that they he never really um presented them with really difficult choices though actually there are plenty of examples of debates at assembly and so on where people were warning him uh, about uh, as a great speech by Nancy Sear in particular, um, uh, warning him against to use a biblical phrase, a whoring after foreign women um, <laughs> in his approach to the Labour Party. What I think he meant by realignment of the left, as I said, he never really spelt it out, um, was actually a breakaway, um, possibly more like realignment of the centre, actually. He wanted moderate Conservatives and moderate Labour people to detach themselves from their two main parties. And ah, the, the Change Party. UK strategy. <laughs> Uh, well, possibly more. Um, the, the perhaps were more of a more of a stronger case for it at that point. And actually, I think we ought to remember the importance of the Suez adventure um, in 1956, just in, before he became leader, and he, he became leader sort of while it was still going on. Going on the British and French invasion of the Suez Canal zone in Egypt after the new Egyptian president had. Uh, national, had privatized, oh, sorry, nationalized, had nationalized mm. the Suez Canal. It'd been bought, it'd been built originally by British and French investors in the 19th century. Egypt took it over basically. Uh, and Britain and France behaved essentially disgracefully in trying to um, protect the interests of their shareholders, including, you know, uh, prompting Israel to invade uh, and then uh, landing an invasion force in Suez. Um, on the pretense that they were there to keep the peace between the warring Israelis and the Egyptians. So this was all exposed later on. It really was a key moment actually in the in the sort of decline of empire and the, its importance in British politics. Um, Grimmond, after a little bit of an initial wobble, opposed it uh, very strongly. And it was really important in the British political context. There's, before that, you could have thought that some of the great legacy of the Liberal Party had been absorbed into the Conservative Party. The, the Conservatives, you know, particularly under Churchill, were very moderate, um, liberal-minded people in many ways. So what was the need for a Liberal Party? Um, so it was Churchill that indeed completely. had not only been a Liberal himself earlier in his political career, but after the Second World War, he did try to persuade the Liberal Party to sort of fold into the Conservative Party, didn't he? So he was, yeah, he yes. very much saw the Liberal Party as being a sort of a 
a remnant that could be swept up by the Conservatives. That's right. It's very much to Clement Davis, uh, Grimmel's predecessor, um, credit as leader that he refused that, even though it must have been tempting to you know, become a coalition minister with, with Churchill. Um, but I think Suez destroyed that image and it led, uh, again, this is one of the reasons why liberal support rose, particularly uh, in conservative voting areas of the country, when people began to realise the Conservatives really weren't that liberal after all. Uh, at the same time, as I said, the Labour Party was going through various internal uh, dissensions. After the 59 election, they'd lost three elections in a row. So just as now, just as in the 90s, people began to write books about can Labour ever win again? They were having big arguments about Europe and other issues. The role of the trade union element was seen as too dominant. So there was a general belief that that you know, bits of the Labour Party might be about to break away. Now, Harold Wilson came in as Labour leader in 63 and managed to kind of paper over the cracks very effectively. You can say that it was just a delayed um delayed sort of uh, papering over the cracks and eventually the Labour Party did begin to splinter in 1981 with the STP. But Grimmond was, I think, reasonably hopeful that it might happen in the early 60s. Uh, and that's what he saw as the realignment of British politics, moderate Labour, moderate Conservatives and the Liberals being uh, a strong central force. Sadly, it never happened. Because in terms of where the Liberal Party had electoral success under Grimmond, it was very much in uh, more comfortable Tory-held Tory seats rather than in, say, poorer, more working-class, Labour-held seats. There were obviously some exceptions to that, but the broad picture was, I think, you know, the, the grim and liberal appeal was very much more to the sort of comfortable suburbs and the like. And you mentioned, for example, the home counties, uh, council councillor numbers growth earlier, which I think illustrates that as well. Um, and that, in a way... Yeah, politically is is means that as much as you're replacing anyone, if you do really well, you're actually replacing Tories. You're you know defeating them, kicking them out of office, and replacing them with Liberals. But it does also perhaps mean that you can see a role that is more complementary alongside the Labour Party. That if you know Liberal success was going to come from taking seats off the Tories, the Labour Party were less the opposition in that sense. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, people often say Tories are the opposition, Labour are the competition. Uh, in fact, I mean, if you look at the electoral record on the Grimmond in terms of parliamentary terms, it was quite disappointing. As you say, they ended up with 12 MPs having started with six and actually having fallen to five after a, a by-election loss in the first year of his leadership. But all the gains were in traditional areas of strength, the Highlands, Southwest England, places like that. It's the kind of Celtic fringe. Um, there was a moment, and again, at the peak of the Liberal revival under Grimmond, around about 62, after the Orpington by-election in March 1962, when the Liberals won with a huge swing away from the Tories in uh, what was essentially a commuter suburb of London, um, that people began to think about and actually to write about something called Orpington Man, which kind of, I think, fueled Grimman's belief in the possibility of realignment. It was the theory was that uh, Orpington was the kind of place with a new type of voter, um, young, middle class, predominantly white collar workers, um, who commuted into, and professional workers commuted into jobs in, in London perhaps, but they weren't so stuck in the voting habits or the social habits of their parents. So this was a community that um, could be attracted to the Liberal Party and if Orpington was repeated, um, this would sweep a whole swathe of home county seats uh, and that kind of seats into Liberal hands. Now the Liberal Party HQ actually commissioned a um, a consultant to go and look at Orpington after the by-election victory and work out what had happened. And he reported that this was complete nonsense. And actually what happened was that it was a really effective local campaign built on local government success with a local candidate against a really unpopular 
um, Tory candidate in, in, uh, introduced from outside the constituency, and it was quite a long campaign. The Liberals had a lot of time to do a lot of intensive campaigning. So it's what we would now recognise as uh, actually a really effective by-election campaign. But that wasn't what Grimmond wanted to hear. Um, but the 64 and 66 elections demonstrated no, you know, no evidence at all for the existence of Orvington Man. So it kind of it was back to the Celtic fringes. It it sounds like there are some parallels with 2019. Uh, no, delete Orpington Man, insert MRP polling. Indeed, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can draw exactly. them. I mean, I, I think the other thing to, that's worth mentioning about the Orpington by-election is just what a shock that by-election victory was for the Liberal Party. In a way that I think, I guess, partly reflects that in the decades to come, the Liberals and then the Alliance and the Liberal Democrats got extremely good at winning such you know shock you know by-elections on enormous swings from the governing party and therefore they've become a little bit less shocking because they've become more the norm um but also because the liberal party had been a party so much as you say previously on its way out i i think you know looking like it was on its way out it the the best analogy now probably would be if there was a parliamentary by-election that happened in october or november this year you know, maybe after coronavirus begins to allow some normal politics issue to return. You know, if there was, say, a by-election in October or November and UKIP or the Brexit party won it, you know, that would really upend people's thinking about the direction of British politics, even if then a few years later it might just be, oh, actually, no, they then lost the seat a couple of elections later and didn't really go, you know, that, that there was a real shock about Orpington um, that perhaps was, in, in a way, although as you say, Orpington Man didn't play out as being a part of a, the, the Liberal recovery. The very fact that the Liberals could occasionally get back in the political game was maybe significant. So uh, I know there were some individual polls which put the Liberals even higher than this, but in the, the aftermath of, of Orpington, the, the Ga- there was a Gallup poll that put the Lib Dems up on, I think it's 26%, so up in the mid-20s, which, you know, for a party that, again, as you say, had looked like it wasn't maybe even a national force anymore, again, was a real, a real change of the sort of political uh, atmosphere. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and I guess there's a lesson there about parliamentary by-elections, because, you know, if the story about Grimmond in part is the drama and the success of Orpington, the story about Jeremy Thorpe would be in part as well as the dog and other things, the three by-election wins in a row in 73 that then set up the, the, the first 74 breakthrough, the story about David Steele's time as leadership in the alliance and parliamentary by, you know, it, parliamentary by-elections have become part of the currency of third-party revivals in a way that I guess accidentally Grimmond almost pioneered, although there had been the Torrington by-election prior to that. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, Orpington, as you say, was the real shock. I mean, Torrington, uh, Torrington and Orpington were the first two by-elections the Liberal Party had won since before the war. So it was, uh, you know, they were quite important in all of themselves, demonstrating again the party wasn't going to disappear. But Torrington was in Devon, was an area of traditional Liberal strength, uh, and the swing wasn't so big. And then the party lost it back to the Tories in the yeah. following year's election. So it had kind of less of an impact. Orpington, they say, was a, not an area of traditional Liberal strength. It was an enormous swing. Mm. Um, and uh, 
Grimmond apparently, when he was on television hearing the result, said, "My God, an incredible result!" You know, he was as shocked as everybody else. Though I, I assume Party HQ must have thought they were in with quite a reasonable chance of winning it, but perhaps not by such a big majority at the time. So it really demonstrated how important by-elections were, as you say, in projecting the Liberal Party into the public mind, and again demonstrating that the Liberal Party could win, which, in for most electors' personal experience, wasn't the case in where they lived. Yeah. Uh, and I think it also. Yeah, HQ themselves learned the lessons of that and began to understand how important by-elections were and more generally actually began to understand how important targeting support was, which was another thing that developed during Grimm's period at something he wasn't particularly uh, he wasn't particularly responsible for. In fact, Jeremy Thorpe was uh, leading a sort of targeting effort for general elections, but another really important innovation that came about in the party during that period. Yeah, um, yeah Grimmond himself certainly doesn't seem to have been that keen on targeting or at least really that much of a pioneer i i remember coming across an account from uh thomas daniels or jack daniels i think as he went um the liberal candidate for luton in 1966 who recounted you know how he received an election uh, visit from joe grimmond in the 66 election even though his chances of electoral victory were minimal uh, in fact less than minimal but, but because grimmond felt that it was the right thing to do to visit every candidate um, and I guess nowadays, obviously, with the party contesting nearly all seats, if not all seats, visiting every candidate is a slightly taller, mm-hmm. taller task for a party leader. But also, it, it evidences a, a really different approach. You know that that sense that the party leader would concentrate their effort on a small number of target seats wasn't for Grimmond, at least, even if it was for other people who he let get on with with other aspects of the campaign. But for Grimmond himself, that wasn't part of what politics and elections involved was it i think that's right and he wasn't he wasn't ever very organized or professional about politics himself um actually russell johnston called him a dilettante revolutionary at one point though i think johnston was um unhappy with him for proposing the idea of electoral pacts with the scottish national party uh, in some scottish seats so there was a bit of personal tension there but yeah it's one of the reasons why i think grimmond is remembered so affectionately by those who came against uh, came across him you know he was genuinely um, a very uh, caring um, person who cared about the party and party activists and instinctively a, a very liberal in his approach, not at all organised. Um, you know, he generally refused to have staff supporting him. He would um, generally get the tube or the train to travel places. He wouldn't often drive anywhere. He refused to be surrounded by, you know, press people. I mean, we didn't have many in those days, but there were some. Uh, and he was just, it was a whole different era in politics. Um, he, uh, there's, uh, there's one um, story that David Steele likes to tell, um, that he was uh, very good on um party political broadcast, partly because he was actually quite short-sighted. Um, and uh, then Grimmond said to Steele after one, after Steele was congratulating him doing a really good job, as Steele, well, what you have to understand, Davis, I couldn't read the autocue. So he just came across naturally. He was very authentic. He wasn't over-rehearsed or you know, artificial in the way that some politicians can do. So it was a very different era. It was more, politics was more amateurish in that sense and certainly less professionalized. But Grimmond thrived in those conditions. I suspect he wouldn't have been nearly as happy in today's uh, more professional atmosphere. Yeah, although that that's one of the interesting transitions we might be going through at the moment, that rise of the really polished politician, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, arguably that sort of trend has stopped even reversed. I mean, there are many things one can say about Boris Johnson, but, you know, you he doesn't exactly go for the slick, polished look, <laughs> even, you know, even literally when it comes to his his hair, but also in terms of his general 
style. So there is, but but as you say, Grimmond, I think, had a bit of that charm, didn't he? That you just felt he was a real, people felt he was a real and genuine person. I think that's right. Authenticity is, um, I think people are putting a higher value on that now. Uh, I guess they always did, but um, I would think it would be, um, clearly Grimmond was very authentic. I think it's much more difficult to be genuinely authentic all the time now when you've got 24-hour media and Twitter and you have to be really careful about what you say. You have the media that will jump down your throats if you say something wrong. You don't have interviewers who will let you go on for several minutes at a time, but they'll interrupt you as soon as they spot you making some kind of mistake. It's a different kind of era um, now. But yeah, authenticity, I think, is important. I agree with that. So we've talked implicitly, I think, quite a lot about differences and similarities between Grimman's time and now and what that might mean for the, you know, for the Liberal Democrats now and choices uh, we might make. Um, are there any other lessons that you would draw? Because one, I think that we've not really touched on that much is there is a sense of the party needing to find its intellectual purpose almost at the moment, uh, you know, post Brexit and with coronavirus wrecking all of the changes as well as the tragedies that it, it has brought of you know, what is what is the role for a Liberal Party now? And I, I mean, I think there is a very clear answer to that and it's almost an easier answer in a way for the party to give now than it would have been in January because you can look at things like coronavirus as a problem that doesn't you know crosses borders that reinforces therefore the case for internationalism for example uh, but nonetheless you know although I, I'm comfortable with my answer to that I think it is fair to say there is a more general sense that we need to make that case much more effectively and that's part of what Grimman did you know Grimman did give people as you said a sense that the Liberal Party were intellectually relevant and um, so are there any lessons either from that or more broadly that you would sort of particularly draw for yeah I think what the party does now I think that's right I think there are um I think what you need to, what we need to have now and what Grimman was very good at doing is providing both a vision and a certain amount of policy mm. detail um and not just policy detail yeah but exciting innovative ideas now Grimman wasn't great at the detail himself but he recognized that he needed it and one thing he did was set up a series of policy commissions um outside the former party machinery often led mm. by academics who were liberal sympathizers some of them went on to be liberal candidates but they weren't you know from within the party machinery uh, I mean we would speaking as a member of the federal policy committee we would love to welcome that kind of thing and actually some some organizations do that but you know the more genuine innovation and ideas we can have the better and that helped in the 60s to build the image of the party as something that was new and modern and relevant to modern day issues and i think we need to do that again for example i mean to pick an example now the party has not thought seriously about what the uk's relationship with the eu should be because of course up until the election last year we were fighting on the basis that we wanted the uk to stay in the eu so there's no point about thinking uh, how we were going to relate to the eu afterwards there are a whole series of ways in which the uk could now work closely with the eu which the government clearly won't go for which we should be making the case for and particularly as labor seem to be kind of allergic to that as well but but you can't just have the policy detail by itself you have to have the overall vision mm. and that's what um that's what Grimmond was brilliant at um even though it was you know it was a bit imprecise at times but he gave the 
um, he, he came over as a genuine internationalist, as someone on the left who was highly critical of the Conservative government for letting public services decay, for creating a political system where privilege counted for um, more than ability, for ignoring the views of ordinary people. So you can see the resonances of today, and Grimms was very good at doing that. And also the whole his whole emphasis on decentralisation, on pushing power down to the level where it can be reasonably exercised and, and ordinary citizens can have most uh, influence over it. And that importance of overall vision over and above policy detail, I guess, is a particularly good point for listeners to have in hand, is at the time at which we're recording this, the official hustings for the Lib Dem party leadership election is just about, uh, just about to kick off. And as actually I was joking before we were recording, I was half tempted to write a blog post about why it's a waste of time asking policy questions at hustings. Um, partly because just the dynamic of the hustings is, unless you ask a really outrageous thing, almost certainly the answer you will get from a candidate who is after all after your vote is a version of, mm, yes, that's very interesting. Um, I'll go away and think about it, or I agree with you. you know, it's really hard to get an answer that is more meaningful than that. There are one or two topics like, say, do you favour unilateralism, on which you might get an answer. But, but, but the other element as to why I think policy questions are of limited value isn't just that the candidates will always seek to, to sort of butter you up in their answer, um, is that it, that's not really the key need for a political party looking to have a relevance and a popularity in the eyes of the public. It's the vision that matters much more and the policy can help illustrate it, but a whole set of policy answers don't give you that vision, do they? I think that's absolutely right. Actually, I remember um, tweeting during the first hustings in the 20, yeah, it was last year's uh, leadership election. Just thinking in the London hustings now, I just wish they'd stop talking about policy issues mm. because, you know, the other point about everything else you said is right. But the other point is that it's not up to the leader to make policy in this party. It's the democratic structures mm. of the party. Um, so all you're really revealing is how much they know about any particular area, which is, you know, kind of useful. But any decent candidate's going to know a reasonable amount about um, mm. liberal democrat policy. It's the way in which they use policy to build mm. a vision and a message that's really important. And if we can get into that in our hustings so far I think that would be really um, really helpful uh, because yeah. that's one thing the leader has to do I think the party can help but the party can't do it for the leader the leader has to do it um, and take their the leading part clearly uh, and doing that in the party yeah and I think that's in part because in terms of for example th doing things like creating a compelling political vision there's definitely value in listening to and discussing with many other people but i think those are the sorts of things that in the end you might have a committee make a decision about do we support this or not or which one are we going to pick but crafting that vision itself is is not that is it, this is not a case where many hands make light work this is a case where too many cooks spoil the broth um, and so there is a really important part for that wider group such as party conference voting on is this direction we want to go in or not but at heart, it is a small number of people, if not only one person, you need creating, you know, that 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 option for then others to decide over. I think that's absolutely correct, uh, and that means that you know the party democratic structures can do so much. You know, we can support, uh, we can vote for a party strategy, we can vote for a pre-manifesto document, but it has to 
you know, you, I'm as democratic as anyone, but you, you have to understand the importance of leadership, mm. particularly for a small party like us, who is, you know, where it's the leader that gets most of the coverage. We really need someone who is able to articulate a clear vision um, and to respond to political circumstances, which might mean that something that conference agreed three months ago might have to um, be not so important yeah. at that time. So, yeah, it's a really, um, yeah, we tried to identify the characteristics of the ideal leader in the history groups, but British liberal mm -hmm. leaders. And uh, two of the things we listed were communications and campaigning ability and ability to develop and articulate a vision. And I think that's absolutely critical. The third one was party management, which is quite important as well. But those those first two are yeah. really important. Yeah. And and in a way, the most meaningful type of question in hustings might well be something like, you know, somebody saying, you know, in fact, I'm sure there are many of our colleagues who are a bit nervous, even scared of the idea of returning to delivering leaflets at some point in terms of what happens if you then discover you had coronavirus and might you have spread mm. it, you know is what does the leader say to somebody who is scared you know who, and that is genuinely scared about whether or not they should start campaigning again because there's a technical answer to that about the party advice on the website and all of that but a really good leader will give an answer that is full of that empathy and that motivation that makes that person feel reassured and makes everyone else listening as well motivated to go out and campaign and that matters far more than what do they think the level of capital gains tax should be in in a Lib Dem budget in four years' time, doesn't it? That's absolutely right. Again, Paddy Ashdown said, um, basically parties are not machines, they are human constructs full of ordinary people who have uh, needs and wants and emotions. And uh, you know, being involved in politics, particularly in Liberal Democrats, is a kind of counterintuitive thing to do, really. You know, we're not going to make money out of it, most of us. Um, it's going to take up lots of our time. It's going to um, uh, cause lots of, um, of um, bitten fingers and, and worn shoe leather and stuff like that. You're really but selling it to me, Duncan. That has to be. It's, we do it because it, partly because it is enormously emotionally rewarding mm. because we are fighting for the cause. We're trying to make the world a better place. And the more that the leader can inspire us to do that, the more effective the leader will be. Yep. So one final question then. If people would like to find out more about Joe Grimmond, uh, having heard this, what would you recommend they read? Obviously, the Liberal Democrat History Group website is a essential bookmark resource for everyone, but what, what would you particularly recommend people? Yeah, so there are two main biographies of Grimmond, um, and I think neither of them are perfect, but there's one by Peter Barbaris called Liberal Lion, which is very good, uh, or better than the other one. The other one by Michael McManus, who was himself a Tory, a kind of moderate Tory, um, is quite good on Grimmond's own sort of personal record, but bizarrely, he puts all of Grimmond's political thinking into an annex, which just shows, you know, only a conservative could do that, <laughs> to think that it's so unimportant that you just stick it in, a, in an annex. So I think it really fails. Barbara's book is better, but it's still, I think, you know, there is a benefit in biographies written by people who understand how political parties work, um, mm. because again, it's good on Grimmond, but less good on the sort of party context. So actually the chapter that in the history group's book, Peace, Reform and Liberation, 
about just the history of the party in that period, I think that's a good complement to uh, the Barbarous book mm -hmm. and sets the more of the political context uh, for what you've um, what you can read in the in Liberal Lion. Um, but actually, just looking through our own website, uh, I said we organised two different meetings, both of which have been written up uh, in the Journal of Liberal History on our website, and there are a couple of other pieces, and they all give a slightly different picture of Grimmond. I think it's a really interesting figure, and I think we don't yet have a really good biography. Um, but if you want to start anywhere, Peace Reform, Liberation, and the Peter Barbarous book, Liberal Lion. Excellent. Thank you very much, Duncan. I will include links in the show notes to all of those books, as well as some, ever, some other follow-ups uh, to things that we've mentioned. So if you're listening, do take a look in the show notes. You can also find Duncan on Twitter, at Duncan Brack. I'm sure he would love your Joe Grimmond trivia questions to be tweeted at him. Uh, you can find myself, at Mark Pack, and this podcast, at Bar Chart Podcast. And please do tweet uh, your feedback on this episode whether you might like to hear more episodes about previous liberal leaders and potential parallels with contemporary politics be really helpful to know that and of course if you did like listening please do tell others about this podcast thank you until next time <laughs>